Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, we're talking to Anissa Gray, the author of The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, which is out now from Berkeley. It was so great to talk to Anissa about her book. Yes, and you know with our kryptonite of multi-generational family <laughs> sagas from multi-perspectives, um, this really was center of our wheelhouse. <laughs> yes, and so many amazing, strong female characters and a very nuanced plot. And it, it it's not a thriller, but it's a page turner, like a thriller. Definitely. And I felt like there were definitely, it would be a great book club book because there are different, you know, perspective female characters. And I think people have their favorites, like what, you know, sisters, their preference or whatever. My personal favorite is Viola. I don't know that I have a favorite sister, but I did when I went to book club last time. They were like, oh, let's talk about books we're going to read later this year. And I'm like, I know this one. We need to read The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. And they were like, well, will you want to read it again? And I'm like, absolutely. (laughs) I, I think that is the best endorsement. Would you read this book again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, oh, man, definitely one of my favorite books of the year so far. Also, this is a book from a fellow woman from Atlanta, so that was pretty exciting. Yes, definitely. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Anissa Gray. Uh, Well, Anissa, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. We both really enjoyed reading your book. And then also, you live in Atlanta, don't you? I do, yeah. I live in Atlanta as well. So it's exciting (laughs) to get to talk to a fellow Atlantan. Um, (laughs) Yes, I'm a transplant, but um, I've been here for about uh, 23 years, and Atlanta now feels like home, so... Much, much longer than me. I've only been here about four years, so um, it's just now starting to feel like home, but it's a great place. So we're always happy to talk to authors located um, in and around the South. And I don't know, it's just a special place for us because we're both based in the South. And I don't know, there's just something special. Great. Well, I'm definitely happy to talk. So before we kind of get into our questions about the book, um, for our listeners who haven't yet read The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, could you describe it to us for them? Uh, Yeah, it's a story about what happens to a family um, after its matriarch, Althea, and her husband are sent to prison for defrauding their neighbors, friends, and much of their community. Um, Althea's two sisters, uh, Lillian and Viola, are forced to return home to deal with the fallout and raise her two teenage daughters. I think what you see is a family moving through the difficulties of loss and forgiveness in some, some imperfect, but I think ultimately hopeful ways. Yeah, and like I think that the relationship between the sisters is something that I was definitely drawn to. But you've actually spent much of your career as a journalist, and this is your first novel. What made you decide to to write a novel? Mm, um, Growing up, I was a kid who, you know, I I loved reading and I loved 
writing stories. So I just sort of always had in the back of my mind that, you know, one day I'm, I'm, I'm going to grow up and write novels. But, you know, I grew, I grew up, went to college, and realized that life cost money. So <laughs> I ended up uh, going into journalism, um, which I, I loved. But I reached a point in my career about five years ago where I was uh, pretty burned out. And uh, I revisited that childhood dream, and uh, I wrote a novel. My first novel was uh, not the best, but I kept going. And if there are any aspiring writers listening out there, I um, urge you to keep going. And I did, and um, we now have the care and feeding of ravenously hungry girls. So were there any skills that you learned as a journalist that helped you with your fiction writing? Um, well, you're certainly using some of the same muscles in journalism and fiction, um, cre- creativity and understanding of storytelling and structure, pacing. Um, but the biggest impact for me was, you know, having been a journalist for, you know, the entirety of my professional career was that I view writing as work. So mm-hmm. it instilled a level of discipline. And I apply that to novel writing. So I'm someone who can make a schedule and keep it. Um, I I don't sort of wait for inspiration to strike, uh, to sit down and start writing. I show up for work every day. And so I think that's probably, that was probably one of the biggest thing, carryovers from, from journalism for me, that discipline. That makes a lot of sense. Like there is definitely this myth around waiting for inspiration to strike but I'm I'm a writer by trade too and it's like when I had to show up every day and write something um I think that's when I I am most creative so it's good to hear that perspective yeah I I like to say that you know I don't necessarily wait for inspiration I find it on the page I find it as I go along um that may take some time for sure and not every day is a productive day but um you know they're all worth it we were researching for to talk to you. Um, I heard that you had not originally intended for this book, Karen Feeding, to be the book that it is. So what book had you originally imagined that you would write, and how did that transition to what we have now? The book I intended to write was about the character Viola, um, the middle sister, who worked in a, as a therapist in an eating disorders clinic. Um, it was based loosely on some of my own experiences in treatment. I had a, an eating disorder roughly from college until about age 40 before I got proper treatment. But as I was writing um, about this character and her work, the book just wasn't coming together. It felt too narrow in scope. So I flailed around for about six months with that until I finally took a closer look at the other people in Viola's life. Um, it was when I started to see her through the lens of family that the voices of her sisters became much more resonant. I hadn't intended to write much about them. As I sort of worked with them on the page, I could see they had their own stories to tell. And through that, I got, I got a much broader, uh, richer story. Uh, so it was a kind of evolution of an idea. One of the things that was the most eye-catching to me about your book was the title, which after reading it, I just felt like was perfect for the story. Was that the title that you had in mind from the beginning, or did it kind of evolve as the story evolved? That was the the title I had from the beginning, um, sort of the obvious reference to um, a character with an eating disorder and writing, you know, primarily about that. But as the story expanded, um, you know, I was reminded that, you know, it, 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 one of the main things in treatment is that it's not about the food. What it's about is, 
you know, what, where are those hollow spaces, you know, that are sort of causing you to act out in uh, some unhealthy ways. And I could see that in the other characters. They acted out in different ways, but there was still that hunger. There was still that loss, that sense of emptiness that they were trying to fill uh, through dysfunctional behavior. So the title made perfect sense, and it stuck from the beginning. You know, that was something that really stuck with me um, because in Care and Feeding, you tackle a lot of difficult topics. But, I mean, the eating disorder uh, really stuck with me because I grew up with um, a brother with eating disorder. Hmm. And so the way that you portray it in the book, the way that Viola's uh, siblings know about her eating disorder and and just kind of monitor that just inherently because Mm -hmm. they love their sister and they're concerned with it really stuck with me. Um, but one of the things that you talk about in the book is that um, when Althea is in prison, uh, her uh, inmates talk about Viola as the rich white girl sister because typically they view an eating disorder as something experienced by like a rich white girl. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the your approach to portraying an eating disorder in the novel and the intersections of society's expectations of who and why people have eating disorders. Yeah, um, well, first of all, the way I approached it was, I, you know, I wanted to do it in a way that was, was quite honest. And, you know, there are a couple of, well, at least one fairly detailed, um, I think, very real scene of Viola in the grips of a binging and purging uh, episode. But um, traditionally, eating disorders are viewed as affecting affluent, uh, younger uh, white women. But as you point out with your brother, in fact, it, it's, a, it's wider than that, um, racially speaking and with respect to gender. And a lot of people of color who um, suffer from eating disorders and boys and young men, they often go unseen. So one of the things I hoped to um, get across in this novel is that this is a much broader issue uh, than the stereotypes uh, will tell us. And not only is Viola black, but she's also in her 40s. Uh, so she's an older patient as well. So I just wanted to, to do a, a realistic portrayal, an honest portrayal, and also present a picture that is uh, not typically what we see. And I think that for me, unlike Kendra, I don't have anyone that I know of, at least, that has an eating disorder. And I felt like it was really educational for me in the sense of like understanding what it's like and how it's portrayed. And even like what you were saying about the hunger and the different ways it manifests itself in the sisters and in the family, that was just really powerful how that was all laid out. So as we've kind of mentioned, the story is told from the perspective of, you know, the three sisters. So you have Althea, Viola and Lillian and the way that they're woven together is really complicated in that they kind of contradict each other or have like different memories of how things happen. And it almost felt like as I was reading, I was imagining like a braid of sorts of the story. What made you decide to tell the story from these three different perspectives and just logistically, like how did you keep it all straight and keep it from getting all tangled up? Well, the reason I, I, I chose to, I won't even say chose to, I felt compelled to, Uh, tell it from these three different perspectives, was because the voices came to me in such a, they were so resonant, uh, they were so strong, that I felt like each one of these women 
uh, needed to tell her own story. So that was the genesis for, I mean, they, they essentially just sort of, you know, introduced themselves to me and, you know, we're going to take from here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. With respect to how I kept it all straight, <laughs> you, you get to know these characters very well. And, you know, there are certain things that, um, like Althea, for instance, is less introspective, at least at the beginning of the book. So I knew with her, if there were areas of uh, emotional introspection, she could not necessarily carry that because she didn't really have access to her emotions in that way. But Viola, being a therapist, she can. So she carries a lot of their childhood memories and the sort of introspection you need to sort of examine that uh, almost in a clinical way. So whenever I needed, you know, a character to be able to speak to that, Viola was the character to uh, speak in some ways for Althea. So it, it sort of played out in that way. Each character has her own strengths and weaknesses, and they sort of carried one another where they needed to. Definitely. Uh, I also read, too, when we were kind of researching before this interview, that you come from a large family, and I, too, come from a large family. I'm I'm number two of six and the oldest daughter, so... But I think about even, like, how now that I'm older and now that my younger siblings are older, um, how when we talk about our childhoods, we have such different memories of, of things that happened. And I was wondering if that, how that dynamic of like growing up in a larger family might have affected how you chose to tell the story. I think it influenced it a lot. I, you know, I, I have three sisters and one brother. When it comes to, as you point out, remembering family events, we remember them differently, certainly because we experience them differently. And I tried to carry some of that over in the um, in the story. And as you pointed out earlier, that you know some of the, the some of the sisters contradict each other. Some memories don't hold the same emotional weight um, mm-hmm. across the board. And I think that's true in life. It's certainly my experience with my own family. And I think you see some of that on the page. Yeah, and that's one of the things while I was reading the book that I found really fascinating is the different perspectives, especially that the sisters had on what happened in their past. And one of those things is really the men in their life. And Althea is, you know, the oldest sister she has is almost like a, she is a mother figure to her her younger sisters, um, but the way they view their father is very different. How did you approach these women's past and how they approach the male figures in their life? And what is it about almost like the generational effect of um, either emotional abuse or just the fa- complicated family situations that we have and the contradictory memories that you have in this novel. How did you like, keep all of that straight and how did you approach writing these women's stories? Mm, I, I think you, you raise a good point with the sort of generational difference. So Althea, well, I won't say she bore the brunt of the abuse, but she experienced a lot of, a lot of the abuse sort of directly. Um, but she never really confronted that. She gets there eventually, but that's not uh, the focus of her life. She confronts it in some um, unconscious ways, but she never really had time to spend a lot of, you know, 
energy on dealing with her emotions. She was left with the care of her children when she was 12, so that's sort of how she barrels through life. And the abuse in her life, she just sort of ignores. But she married a man who was very different from her abusive father. Proctor is just a gentle giant um, who takes care of her in a lot of ways. So I, I think that's how um, Althea sort of deals deals with abuse and, and, and emotion. And when you get to Lillian, who is the youngest sister, who also lived with the father and was much closer to the father, she had a, a completely different experience of the man. By the time she came along, he was there for them and non-abusive. So she loves him in a way that her other siblings do not. I think that was so fascinating to watch that kind of unfold, like those relationships. And it was also, you know, talking about generational differences, the twins and how Althea's twins, how they, in a lot of ways, like mirrored their aunt's and mother's behavior, but also like that generational change, how they diverted from it as well. And I think, too, with the twins, the younger girls, there was an expectation uh, of care. Yes. Um, even even though, you know, they, they didn't get it in the ways they needed, they would confront their Aunt Lillian, who they lived with, about, you know, not telling them things that they thought that they should know. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know you know, when are you going to take me to see my mother? There was an expectation, which was quite different from, from their aunts. Uh, they sort of took life as it came and um, didn't expect much at all. And we'll be back with more of our conversation with Anissa Gray after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Woman is The Great Courses Plus. We're always trying to be smarter versions of ourselves. That's why we love watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. There is a wealth of information available on this streaming service from some of the best college professors across so many areas of interest. And there's never the pressure of homework or exams. You just get to sit and listen to the lectures, absorb and learn, which is personally my favorite type. (laughs) Definitely. You can enjoy lectures on topics like the women of Hamlet, cooking, astrophysics, Victorian Britain, or even how to publish your own book, just to name a few of them. There's always something new to explore, and we've got an incredible offer for you. Definitely. And we have learned so much from the Great Courses Plus. But one of the courses that I've found interesting lately is one called Heroes and Legends, the Most Influential Characters of Literature. For me, there are some great lectures in here, like the story of Guinevere, a heroine with many faces, the wife of Bath, an independent woman. So there are 24 video lectures that cover a wide range of heroes and legends and many books that you're probably familiar with, but may not know exactly their history. So we know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus too. So we worked out this special limited time offer just for our listeners. You'll get a free trial plus lock into their lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. This is an incredible deal to get unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus, but it's only available for a limited time and only by going to our special URL. So to get your free trial plus 50% off your monthly plan now, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash reading women that's the great courses plus 
facebook.com slash reading women. And all of that information will be in our show notes. And thanks so much to the Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. And the family dynamics really, uh, I found so fascinating about this book because you have so many different characters and so many different perspectives. And uh, I'm a huge nerd on structure (laughs) in books. (laughs) And I, I love the way that you did that because it was like we had a puzzle and we were putting it together. And one of the things I really loved about this book is Viola and her wife and how she's experiencing their experience. They're separated and they're experiencing some difficulties in their marriage. And when we oftentimes see LGBTQ plus characters, they're often one of the plot points is the fact that they are a queer individual, but you just had it as just part of life. Was there a certain approach that you particularly wanted to take to Viola's life? Or was that just something that happened as the course of who Viola is? Um, And what was your process for writing her story? I, you know, I just wrote wrote her as she is. I have been with my wife for, uh, it'll be 25 years in April. I, I was interested in sort of capturing a couple, you know, and it hasn't for us, you know, we've been together a long time and there have been some difficult years in there. And I wanted to catch them at a moment of difficulty um, that literally any couple experiences if they've been together <laughs> for long enough. I wanted to do an honest depiction of life, and this is Viola's life. She happens to be married to a woman. They happen to be going through a difficult time like any other marriage, and they are trying to find their way back to each other. That was one of the things that Kendra and I both talked about after we read it was how we really enjoyed reading about their relationship and just even seeing how how they worked through it, (laughs) you know, just like talking through problems and things like that like it was just you know you said true to life and I'm like yeah that's exactly how I felt when I finished the book is like wow this is just really just such a true story which I don't feel like I've read many of those lately so it's definitely refreshing to read and you have so many I mean we have the three sisters so you have so many women in this book and the twins are are both women and you see them coming of age, but the only perspective that we really get outside of that is is Proctor, who is married to Althea, and he's also part of why you know Althea's in prison. And I won't give any more spoilers for <laughs> um, those details. Um, but he writes mainly in letters. What was important about including his perspective, especially through letters? What really drew you to including his part of the story of this family? Well, and I'll try to go forward without including any spoilers. Um, Proctor was an important part of the crime Althea commits. And I also see Proctor as Althea's conscience. She speaks early on in the book about uh, men and boys being uh, earth and stone. And I, I see him as being sort of her solid, the solid thing she holds on to. So it was very important for me to have the readers know why this woman who does, you know, she has a difficult relationship with her daughters, a difficult relationship with her sisters, and yet 
you can see the love she has for this man. And I felt like readers needed to see why. And to, to do that, they needed to know Proctor. Um, and I thought Proctor, I, I, I went, I did a, you know, a few practice, uh, a, a few, pra- a bit of practice writing with Proctor, but his voice seemed to be most resonant in letters because it was just a moment of pure, un, uninterrupted dialogue from him. So that's why I approached it in letters. We, we could, I could describe this book so many different ways, you know, but the love story or like the relationship between Proctor and Althea was such a, almost seemed like it was the heart of the novel, like in a very emotional sort of way, but it wasn't. I've been talking a lot about like this this multi-generational aspect of the relationship between like the siblings and their, their parents. And then with Proctor and Althea, we see that they too have, you know, different relationships with their daughters. Was that part of the plan like to, for, to show like how these things carry on from generation to generation or how like Proctor tries to stop this pattern of like disconnect between parental relationships. But uh, yeah, no, I think you're, you're hitting on something, um, something important for me. What's at the heart of the book is this, you know, this look at family and how traumas can be, passed down from one generation to the next Mm -hmm. and what happens when something forces us. And in this case, it's the arrest and, and the impending imprisonment when something forces us to confront those traumas and the secrets behind them. So that's, that's where this family is. Um, And they have an opportunity here, as you were pointing out to stop this cycle. And I, I think it takes Proctor but it also takes the sisters as well, um, coming to terms with some things from the past and how they feel about each other, all with an understanding of there are two young lives at stake here. And I think in a lot of ways they are all trying to break the cycle. And it would be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about the ending. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what readers think about whether they feel like this family accomplished that, whether they feel like this family is on their way to someplace better. And I feel like you captured that beautifully, and I really appreciated the open-endedness of the ending because you could see that there were choices made at the end of the novel, and it was really just open-ended whether or not what would happen. And that's really the way life is. You make decisions and it's open-ended, and you yeah. have to see how it comes out in the end. And Autumn and I both adore family sagas, especially multi-perspective family sagas. And this really was our kryptonite in that it was <laughs> just beautifully portrayed. And the way the three sisters contradict each other, the tension between them, and the way that they tell the same story in different ways, it's really beautiful and complex in that way. But ultimately, it's about the next generation and, and the twins and, and what will happen in their lives and the decisions made by their aunts or their mother in what would happen to them. So really beautifully constructed. And I just we just loved it. Thank you so much. Well, um, one of the things in particular I loved about this book is that while it's multi-perspective, in the audiobook, there are multiple narrators. And I have chronic daily headaches and migraines and 
for the most part, use audiobooks to be able to read books. And the way that it they handled that, the producers handled that, and having the different narrators was just gorgeous and made the listening experience in particular very beautiful. Were you involved in the process of making of the audiobook? And when you were writing the book, did you think about what it would be like when the book was read out loud? No, I, I did not at all think about what it would be like when the book was uh, read aloud. However, um, I was, I did get, I was involved um, in some of the casting choices the producers made. So what they did was they sent me um, voice files for each of the characters. And it's really interesting, you know, as a writer, I, I don't have a clear picture of a face for any of my characters, and I don't have a clear picture of voices either. When they sent these different actors and they had an idea who should play who. And I listened, and I was like, no, no, I think that voice sounds... And it, it was at that moment that I could really start to hear the voices of these characters in a, in a concrete, real way. And that was actually a lot of fun. Well, I really appreciated the multiple narrators, because when you have multiple narrators, it's great when they switch uh, narrators so that you know, like, you're mentally switching to the different characters. Yeah. And I actually have a friend on BookTube who cast your entire book, uh, and, he, and he was like, I imagine this person is this character, and, like, you know, Janelle Monet was this character, and Viola <laughs> Davis was this character, and I was like, yes, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> well, I, I fully support this and would love to see it. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk a lot more about your book, but we don't want to veer into like too many spoilery categories. So we always like to ask the guests we have on the podcast, like who are your favorite, like go-to female authors that you recommend or your, you know, favorite female writers that you enjoy reading? I would say um, Toni Morrison, uh, The Bluest Eye was the first sort of serious book I ever read growing up, and so she has remained a favorite for me for the better part of my life. Mm. Um, Zadie Smith, um, one of my favorite books from her is On Beauty. Um, I was actually reading that that book um, at at one point when I was writing uh, that, you know, that beautiful sort of family story. Um, and another um, author I love is Jeanette Winterson. She writes some of the most beautiful lyrical sentences, and probably one of my favorite books from her is Written on the Body. She's so good, isn't she? Just like I love Jeanette Winterson. <laughs> I think one of the best compliments for a writer is when their writing is just so beautiful, you just don't have words. You don't have words to describe how much you love them. Yeah, Jeanette Winterson falls into that category for sure. We also like to ask writers, uh, what are you working on now? Now, we understand if you don't want to share anything because it's still new, but um, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, I am working on another book. It's a, uh, it is a family story, but it's a much smaller family, mom, dad, and daughter, and um, it's what's ha- what happens after the, after the dad disappears. So that's about all I'm, I'm at liberty to say. <laughs> very excited for it because yes i we just love the care and feeding so much thank you so much i absolutely appreciate it and have enjoyed talking to you too for sure well we definitely enjoyed talking to you as well and thank you so much for talking to us about it we really enjoyed it 
We'd like to thank Anissa Gray for talking to us about her debut novel, The Carrot Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, which is out now from Berkeley. You can find Anissa on her website, anissagray.com, and on Instagram at anissagrayauthor. And of course, all of Anissa's information will be linked in our show notes. We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers, with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandeb. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound Podcast. Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.